Hey friends, welcome to Boss Barista, the podcast about workplace equity and employee empowerment in coffee and beyond. I'm Ashley Rodriguez. Hey friends, for the rest of the year, we're bringing back old episodes of Boss Barista. Part of the reason we're doing this is because the community of listeners who are part of Boss Barista is so different than it was just a few years ago. But also, many of the episodes carry lessons and ideas that I still carry with me and are worth revisiting. You're about to listen to an episode from Alice Wong, editor and founder of the Disability Visibility Project. Back when this episode aired in August of 2018, there was a lot of talk about bans on plastic straws, with some folks arguing that they're wasteful. Alice came on the show and rightly challenged that idea, saying that the straw ban debate erased the perspectives of disabled people and was an example of performative environmentalism. Since this episode aired, Alice has edited a book called Disability Visibility, First-Person Stories from the 21st Century. You can pick up her book and visit her website, disabilityvisibilityproject.com, and check out the interviews and podcasts that Alice works on. Here's the episode, and you can find a full transcript at bossbarista.substack.com. Uh, so could you introduce yourself to us? Okay. Hi, my name is Alice Ward. I live and work in San Francisco. I'm a longtime coffee drinker. And a coffee lover, and I'm a disabled activist. You have a project called the Disvisibility Project. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? Yeah, so uh, I founded the Disability Visibility Project in 2014, and it's basically kind of two things. It's a campaign to encourage people with disabilities to record their oral histories. I have a community partnership with a story corps, which is a national oral history nonprofit. And you know, the reason why I started this project is that you know I don't see enough media and enough history about our community. So uh, this is kind of my way of kind of giving back and also you know encouraging people to tell their stories and, you know, create their own history. And one thing that's really exciting about it is that as a partner with StoryCorps, they have a relationship with the Library of Congress. So anybody who participates has the option of archiving it at the Library of Congress. And since 2014, we have over 140 oral histories recorded so far and you know that to me is kind of amazing because this is kind of a gift for the future and it's a way of recording who we are right now and that's you know I think we think of history as you know something way back when but we are constantly creating history even right now as we speak you and I are creating history our boss barista and uh, the Disability Visibility Projects kind of snowballed into 
uh, at all like communities. So I have a podcast, just like you did. I have like various online communities uh, on Twitter and Facebook. And it's really giving us a place for us. So that's kind of what I'm all about. So obviously you've been doing this activism for a long time, but recently um, I think kind of your activism sort of intersected with the coffee community because of all the straw bans that have been going on kind of all over the United States and even internationally, I realized. Um, In your article that you wrote for Eater, you mentioned that I think Scotland and I think Taiwan are moving to like removing plastics and removing straws in their, in basically all aspects of life. So um, can we talk a little bit just about like that in general? Like what were your sort of initial thoughts when you started reading that more and more municipalities were considering banning plastic straws? Yeah, I think uh, as I started reading more and more about the bad in Seattle, the bad in Vancouver, you know, I really listened to what disabled people are saying. And, you know, on the ground, people were saying how a lot of the decision makers, you know, at their, at the city level were just not really paying attention to what, you know, concerns people with disabilities are having. You know, each kind of band is different. You know, some have an exemption for people with disabilities, and even that is problematic in itself because of how these exemptions are, you know, written and enforced. Again, you know, bans are, I think they really need to be carefully constructed. And based on my observations of a lot of these, you know, bans and this trend toward, you know, phasing out plastic straws, a lot of it has been just in reaction to, you know, PR campaigns by, you know, environmental groups who are just like, you know, seizing this moment, using celebrities, and raising awareness without really thinking about the implications on actual marginalized people. Yet that's where, you know, the performative aspect it's really disturbing because you know Starbucks and I was there you know it was really it made a lot of news what they said they were going to phase it out and you know we see after the Starbucks ban that you know so many other larger you know Shake Shack you know all over the you know the country of the world large corporations are doing this and this is part of the you know, I think trend toward, you know, social responsibility. You know, a lot of these corporations are just, you know, trying to really just appeal to millennials and really be, you know, as woke as possible. And I think, you know, this is it in the rush and in the urgency to do that and to do good. They're really, you know, neglecting the real world concerns. And that's really, you know, unfortunate. What drove you to be 
kind of more vocal about this on social media because you are, you're pretty active about it on Twitter and you wrote an article that we mentioned earlier um, for Eater mm-hmm. about some of the responses that you were getting. Yeah, I mean, it really, the straw bed really is visceral. It really needs to be the guts because this is about a daily activity, drinking. You know, if that was threatened by, if your right to drink and eat was threatened, I mean, it's very real. And I think what's really, and it's not exaggerated, right? I think this is what's, what's really sad is that people think, oh, these, you know, don't worry about it. Like, I've had so many non-disabled people online tell me, don't worry, you're, you know, these bans, these exemptions, you're going to be fine. You know, there's there's no way you would be denied a straw. And I'm just like, if you just kind of understood what it's like to be disabled and how every day, even with a parent visitors, even with a, a parent visibility, disability, like mine, you know, it's, you are constantly scrutinized. And the microaggressions are just, you know, so real that people just assume that everything is going to be okay and that we should all, you know, pun intended, suck it up for the greater good. And I think that's what's really missing is that the conversation has always been about, like, if you're not with us, you're against us. And we're saying... This is just another erosion in our way to participate in public, in our ways to be part of society. Um, you know, some of my friends online have already showed me these uh, little signs, you know, posted at restaurants that are really passive-aggressive about, you know, we're not serving we're not providing any straws anymore because we care about the environment. Thanks anyway. You know, people are actually being really proud of not providing straws. And that's, you know, that to me is like another sign that, you know, let's say people say uh, straws are bad. And they say, oh, people with disabilities should bring their own straws. So let's say they bring their own straws and start using them. In this kind of climate, you can imagine the kind of like possible harassment or you know criticism they'll get just for using a straw in a public space. If you look at Santa Barbara, where they have one of the most you know punitive bands with really steep fights and even jail time for establishments that provide plastic. I mean, that's really where you're creating conditions that send a message to people with disabilities, older adults, you know, all kinds of people that make these straws that your way of life is not welcome. Your way of life is not normative. And what do you do with that? You just basically are marginalizing us 
Seven years away, it telling us that we don't belong in the same place as you do. And this is, you know, 18 years after the Americans with Disabilities Act, after decades of, you know, disability rights activism that really fought against segregation and against the days where there were laws called ugly laws. So I'm not sure if you realize this, but, you know, in the, in the old days, there were laws that disabled people and all kinds of people were not allowed in the public space because they affected people. Just their bare existence made people uncomfortable. And I really do see a connection between these straw bands and these kinds of historic laws that discriminate. I think you just said a lot of things that were really interesting, and I kind of want to unpack some of them. So one of the things I think you mentioned in the straw ban is that you you said that there's this mentality of if you're with us, if, if you're not with us, you're against us. Mm-hmm. Um, have you gotten that kind of feedback from people that like, oh, you must not care about the environment? Yeah, definitely on uh, Twitter and on Facebook, you know, a lot of folks have said, well, I just don't understand you know, why, you know, why you have to use plastic? You know, why can't you use a reusable one? Or why can't you use a compostable one? You know, and then I would explain. And somehow these explanations are not adequate. And a lot of people straight up said, this is what we all have to do in order to reduce plastic pollution. And, you know, I, I am all on board with, you know, reducing my consumption, but I'm going to do it in a different way. And I think this is the limitations of this whole movement towards zero waste, you know, that it doesn't account for different lived experiences. It's very dogmatic. You know, it should be an ideal. And the way we, you know, do it, we should be able to build in flexibility. And people just have definitely been very, very confrontational and very, you know, aggressive about, you know, my own story, about my own life. One person said, I looked weak. He actually said my story and the way I talked about needing a plastic straw. He's like, she seems weak in telling this and explaining this. And I was just so stuck by that because it's as if I'm trying to ask for pity or that somehow, like, you know, I've been fighting pity when I'm just really being honest about where I am and where my like, relationship is with plastic. And I think we all have to have, you know, all these conversations about our own relationships with plastic and with consumption and capitalism. And I've tried with everything I do, I just, you know, I try to keep it real. Right. And I think 
you mentioned in the article too that there are ways that you can cut consumption of plastic in way way more drastic ways and those are things that are not being talked about at all but even just the idea that you have to justify your story seems to be a big theme just in activism in general the fact that you or others in your community say hey this is a thing we need or this is a thing that hurts us and the question isn't about oh how can we help you or how can we do better but the question is well how does it hurt you yeah, and I think it's been a trauma to occurs with if anybody who uses Twitter, uh, all they have to do is go to the hashtags, uh, strawband, and the hashtag, suck it, hey, Melissa, which is a hashtag that I think I created, but I'm not really sure if anybody else uh, might have thought of that earlier. But uh, you just see a lot of disabled people over and over again being demanded by non-disabled people to explain themselves, to provide free education, and to not be, and always having to confront not being believed. And that kind of, you know, that kind of interrogation is a real example of the power dynamics, as if this, you know, sense of entitlement, as if we have to like slice and expose so much of ourselves just to say, hey, we're human. We also were just like you. But actually, that should be the default that our needs are just as valid as yours. And I think right now we're still, it's 2018 and we're still at a place where our needs are not, it's, it's not seen as equal or as important as anybody else's. So that to me has been really telling. And it's really just a drop of the bucket in terms of the larger conversation about ableism in our culture. Yeah, can you talk a little more about that and unpack kind of how this issue has really opened up kind of a bigger lens on how we view ableism in our society? Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's it's so ingrained in what we do and how we think and the language we use, you know. I myself am learning all the time. I myself am working on my own you know, internalized ableism. It's really so much a part of our culture that sometimes, you know, we don't even see it. And it's really until, you know, disabled people have been pointing it out and naming it that we finally get to really see it fully manifest. So, you know, I think that's one of the things, one of the reasons why I started the disability you know, visibility project is that, you know, for a long time, our stories were told by other people. You know, it might be by a reporter and like, you know, it's framed as, you know, inspiration and like, oh, look at these poor disabled people. Yeah, or oh, look at these, you know, 
you know, BC people were just so angelic, were so innocent, and often it's often told by advocates for us, like our parents or non-disabled people who are seen as our representatives. And this is where, you know, we really need our space and our own platforms to really be true to ourselves. And this is what ableism does, where, you know, we are not centered. And I think a lot of the marginalized communities are not centered. If we think about the representation in the media, we have such a long way to go. In terms of Black, Indigenous, people of color, women, people with disabilities, LGBTQIA folks. So it's really interesting that you know, disability is often still seen as, you know, an afterthought or not even considered a marginalized community because, again, disability is often seen as this very medicalized individual thing that it's a, you know, it's a health problem. It's a, it's something that's broken or something that's, wrong with the individual, but really, it's a culture, it's a community. Yeah, for a lot of folks, it's, you know, a socio-political identity. That's what it is for me. You know, we are a people, and we have a history. So, whenever we center ourselves, I think that's really, that's the goal, to really shift from this, you know, white, cisgender, heteronormative default in most of our broader conversations. How do we bring in everybody else? And that, to me, is always where, where I'm kind of trying to be coming from. Does that answer your question? I hope it does. I think it does. I think I asked a very vague question. Um, with that in mind, we are going to take a break and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. We are talking with Alice Wong, who is the founder of the Disability Visibility Project. And you just talked a little bit about kind of the larger lens of ableism and how it affects the way that we talk about disability. And I was wondering, like, what drove you specifically to activism? Like, when did you start thinking of yourself as an activist? You know, I really was reluctant to even use that word for a while because, you know, my upbringing is, you know, my training has really been in academia. You know, I went to grad school for sociology. You know, I always thought my world was going to be about research and teaching. And, you know, I really became much more politicized as a younger adult. And I think you know, a lot of, I really became an accidental activist, you know, and I was always worried about identifying as an activist because I really had a very 
I think a lot of people have a very narrow sense of what does it mean to be an activist. And, you know, sometimes I think you have to be, you know, somebody who's like a, a grassroots community organizer, you know, somebody who lays their body on the line, you know, somebody that, you know, just, you know, gives their all. And I think I really fell into it as just living as a disabled person where I had to advocate for myself uh, versus as a kid. And, you know, I really realized that systemic change is what's, what's what, really what it's all about. It's about changing the system. It's about changing institutions. It's about shifting the culture. And that work is much more difficult. And that work really requires, you know, collaborations, partnership, and mobilization with, you know, multiple movements. It's not just about bettering yourself. It's about how do we lay the ground for the future generations so that we don't have to repeat this work again and again. So, you know, so I was an accidental activist where in grad school I started you know, connecting with other disabled students, uh, moving to the Bay Area, you know, San Francisco. Uh, I feel really blessed to be in a place where there's such a vibrant and diverse disabled community. So that I really, I really saw the power at the beauty of our community. And then I became much more, you know, comfortable thinking about there's all kinds of activism and all kinds, <clears throat> all kinds have a value. Most of my work is through online communities. So, you know, there used to be kind of this, I think it's sort of a false divide you know, between, like, different, different modes of activism. And, you know, I do really believe that sharing information, telling our stories, even you see on Twitter with a hashtag, those are all really effective forms of activism. And they all work well together with other types. It's not... It's not a contest. They're not in opposition to one another. They're just different approaches. So, yeah, it's, it took me a long time to be able to say I'm an activist out of my own kind of insecurities about what is an activist with a capital A? Mm-hmm. What does that really mean? Do I even, do I even count compared to the other folks who've been doing this their entire lives. So, yeah, it's been, I'm a constant, like, work in progress, I think. I think you hit on this a little bit, the idea that social media is a really powerful form of activism, and it's not a contest. Um, Something that I've seen a lot recently is kind of this idea that social media activism is not real activism, like if you don't show up 
that's not activism. And I think you touched on that really eloquently that there are a lot of ways to participate. And even just like you yourself had to like conceptualize this new idea of an activist because we have these like very strict ideas of what they are, but that's starting to change, which is really great because that means that more people can participate and tell their stories. Yeah, and I think again, it's just like there's something very ableist about activism in itself, where that you know you have to do X, Y, Z, and what does that mean? And I think that you know one of the normative expectations of to be a real activist, you know, there are a lot of people with disabilities, and a lot of folks that can't travel, like for example, I can't fly. And I can't make it to a march, you know, some rallies, you know, I just, for me, it's such an expenditure of my own energy and my own safety that I don't go to rallies, I don't go to marches, but that doesn't mean I'm not in solidarity with the folks that do. And I feel like social media has given a lot of people with, who are really badass organizers and activists online doing the work, doing the labor. You may not be able to see the labor in the same ways as people holding signs and people wearing their hats, but they are there doing the same work. They may be doing it from their bed. They may be doing it in front of their computer. You know, they may be doing it at a doctor's office, you know? So I think there's a whole lot of kind of invisible, invisible, unaccounted for labor that does happen on online spaces that really people just think of it as lazy activism. And whenever I see that kind of, you know, term slacktivism or lazy activism, about online activism, I really do see it as an ableist attack because for some people this is this is their world. This is this is the world where they are the most empowered. And why is that? It's because the built environment and other movements aren't inclusive enough. So we find environments where we are, you know, able to have the most potential impact. So I want to talk a little bit about the built environment because for many of the people listening here, they either work in coffee shops or they own coffee shops or they interact with very physical spaces on a day-to-day basis. And something that I was thinking about a lot in your article in Eater is the idea of hospitality and how it, you know, making barriers to getting things like straws, like making exceptions that make it more difficult for you to have to take another step to get a straw isn't great hospitality. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what it is like for you to go into coffee shops and to not experience the same type of hospitality in a number of ways, not just in treatment, but just in the way that spaces are created for you. Yeah, you know, I really have really some great experiences at 
a lot of cafes in my neighborhood, and I just want to give a shout out to like my neighborhood cafes that I really love. There's San Francisco at the Mission. Um, I love Cyclas. I love Atlas Cafe, and you know I go there because when I go there, it's not a big deal if I have to ask for help, but I do ask for help for a number of things. For example, you know, some of the places have higher counters and I need assistance with, you know, people bringing my drink to my table, people adding sugar for me to my lattes, uh, asking people to put a lid on my cup because I can't grab the lid because they're usually on a counter that's too high. And even asking for a straw. And so far, it's been like, when people make it, when people assist me, it is not a big deal. That to me is great hospitality because that's what it's all about. It's like, you know, it's not a special thing. It's just part of good service. And I have been in places where people have really given me very clear, like, their non-verbal and verbal communication where I definitely don't feel welcome. Um, you know, for example, like, cafes or restaurants where it might be a smaller space. So my wheelchair might have a little bit difficulty, you know, turning around or moving a chair out of the way. You know, and, you know, you can tell, like, sometimes people just, like, give me this look like they just can't be bothered. Like, they roll their eyes, they get a little huffy. You know, as if, like, I just take up too much space. So, you know, little things like that really send these messages that somehow I'm just taking up too much space. Or that I've asked you for too much. And I think it's, you know, if for the folks who are listening to this podcast, you're going to encounter all kinds of people, people with who are, who have not apparent needs. You know, sometimes you can't see what their access needs are. Or people like me who are a little bit more apparent in terms of having a different way of moving and being. And I think what you do is just be as open and as receptive and responsive to the request and try to be as accommodating as possible without without it being, you know, overly unreasonable. And I think that goes a long way. And I think that builds a lot of goodwill with all kinds of people, with all kinds of customers. Because I really want to be a loyal customer. I I truly uh, appreciate places where I feel welcome. And unfortunately, it's because there has been a lot of, you know, bad experiences if I had. Even in San Francisco, such a, you know, quote-unquote progressive place, it's not really always that great. So what I do feel 
brought up, and I do feel like it's not a big deal, but people help me. I will go back again and again because that they deserve my my um my patronage. Right. I think something that really like just stood out to me is the idea, and you mentioned this earlier, like of problematic ex- uh, exceptions. So like you can give a straw to somebody if they ask for it, but that is just a step that further marginalizes groups. And I think what really stuck there with me was this idea that you're being denied the same experience as everybody else. The whole idea is that you should be able to go into a coffee shop and have a drink the way that you can have it and leave. Yeah, I think what's really sad is that, you know, these bands, you know, these ideas that these exceptions are good and that we should be satisfied with exceptions because oh, you know, we've listened to disabled people and, you know, they're going to be okay. All you have to do is, you know, request one. And I think what gets kind of lost in that is that it's assumed that, you know, uh, cafe owners or restaurants are going to be, you know, how do they interpret the need and the request? I mean, uh, already... If you just ask people with disabilities their experience in public spaces, a lot of people are questioned all the time about their right to have a service animal, their right to use parking with a placard. I mean, there's a lot of people who just think you are not allowed. You are not valid. Your needs are not uh, not legitimate. And again, it's this question of who is worthy and who is the, who's doing the judging. Oftentimes, it's going to be not disabled people in positions where they can judge. And that to me is super problematic because there's no way to enforce, no matter how much training and now how much outreach, you know, a city does with small businesses about these exceptions, you can't change the way people behave and think about disability through a ban, through an exception. And that to me is where I know in my gut that there will be cases of people who will request a straw. It will have to be, have to be answering all kinds of inappropriate, invasive questions about their quote-unquote medical need for a straw. And that's, that is just a doubter for a casual Hang out with your friends not, uh, for brunch or for an uh, evening out. People just want to have a good time. And that to me is the total opposite of hospitality. Agreed. And I think that was a really important point for you to put in there that it's it's completely the opposite of hospitality. It's exactly making 
people feel uncomfortable for the things that they need. Um, shifting gears a little bit, um, I am intrigued by people who also like to tell stories because that's obviously something I really like to do. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about about your podcast. What kind of stories do you look to tell? What are the things that have resonated with you the most, and what are you hoping for the future? I do. You know, I really uh, there's such so much I think within the disability community in terms of issues that we care about and also about our culture that you know most people don't know about and i really want to just show the huge kind of rage and diversity of uh disabled people and just to really increase the diverse representation of what does it mean to be disabled and you know as a disabled woman of color i really don't see enough you know, people of color who are disabled represented. Uh, I think right now the default image, you know, on like, for example, stock images of uh, people with disabilities are practically all white. And if you even look at like Hollywood movies, you know, representation of disability, it's often a wheelchair user, you know, white male or female. And, you know, again, this is where us telling our stories, us really amplify people that may not have the same reach or visibility. That to me is really important. So, uh, you know, I talked about political issues. I talked about people just living their lives. And, the experience, the lived experience, to me is really important because it's all it's 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 kind of for us as a community, for us to be able to see ourselves is incredibly important and powerful. And I think about you know young folks as well who are just working through their own you know identity and working through their own stuff and. I also think about not disabled people who want to be better allies, who want to be better co-conspirators to take down and, and smash ableism with us that by listening and learning straight from us, hopefully it'll make a difference. So having our stories out there in the internet, you know, who knows who it'll reach? And I hope that's probably, I'm guessing that's kind of why you do your podcast as well. Yeah, that's definitely part of it. Uh, I mean, maybe this is like a little um, off topic, but I just released an episode about um, about abortion. And I've never had more people reach out to me. And that like, yeah, that felt really wonderful. In a way. <laughs> And, you know, it's kind of like, as a creator, I don't know about you, but it's like, you really have no idea the impact your work will make. You know, you put it out there with the best intentions, and it's amazing, I think. It can't be underestimated, the ripple effect of just a little story. And that, to me, is just so 
it keeps me going. It really, it really, you know, every time I feel frustrated or that people are shitting on me or criticizing me, you know, I think about, okay, you know, there has been influence, there has been a difference, and it makes me feel good, you know, it keeps me, it, it, it keeps me going. What would you want people listening to this to take away from listening to you? Well, I hope that uh, for the coffee community that they think about accessibility, they think about inclusion, whatever they talk about customer service, whatever they talk about hospitality, they think about all kinds of communities that are part of your customer base. You may not see them, they might not be, you know, as apparent to you, but they are part of your customers. And maybe potential customers. And, you know, whenever you are considering changes to your practices or policies, think about the most marginalized communities. Think about how it will impact them and hopefully let that be instructive in how you want to make changes. So I just that would be my kind of messages. And just to be kind of open and receptive to changes. And I think I really want to give a shout out uh, to Dick Cho from Rookie Ball Coffee because, you know, when I first started tweeting a lot about the straw man, you know, he tweeted me, you know, asking me about, well, what, what, what do you, what would be the ideal situation? And I gave him my advice. And he actually, you know, took it to heart. And, you know, I suggested that if you make compostable straws readily available, that you also make plastic straws readily available. Or if your compostable ones are by request, then you also offer the option of plastic ones. You know, I guess to quote a line from my essay at Eater, you know, if a cafe could offer four different kinds of milk, and a restaurant can offer 50 types of beer and wine, they can offer two types of straws. And I think it goes a long way toward giving people choices and giving space for all kinds of people to be part of your part of your world. That's that's awesome. That is uh I'm happy to hear that people are listening to you and taking that advice into account. And like you said, it was as simple as interacting on Twitter and asking for your advice. I felt so honored by that because, you know, above all the, you know, negative stuff that this is again a great example of being open and connected. And see how 
there is a difference where people do change, and people are paying attention. And you know, I also want to thank you for you know opening your space and allowing me to be here to share my story. And you know, hopefully, influencing more people in the coffee community because I love coffee, and I definitely am. You know, what's all communities in the food service industry to really think about inclusion and accessibility and how we all may have you know, implicit biases and to really be open and honest about you know, working through that. And we should do that together. I mean, thank you for being on the show and being so open and honest with us. Um, if people want to talk to you or if they want to reach out to you, what are some ways that they can find your work or engage with you on social media? Yeah, sure thing. Uh, so for folks uh, who want to email me, I'm at disability, visibilityproject at gbl.com. So email me anytime. And also, uh, I'm on Twitter at SF Direwolf, D I R E W O L F, because I'm a fan of Game of Thrones. <laughs> and, uh, you can also find more about the Disability Visibility Project at disabilityvisibilityproject.com. I was just there earlier today when I was like, doing all my questions and notes for this episode. And I was really, um, I was reading the story about the high schoolers who started the disability museum. Um, there are so many amazing stories on your website. So definitely check those out. Oh, thanks so much. And, you know, feel free to like, you know, be part of the community. Enjoy it and just, you know, be part of us. I think everybody's welcome. Yes. And thank you so much for, again, just for being here and being open with us. And if I can also uh, encourage folks who are podcasters who may be listening, uh, you know, another aspect of accessibility that I'm trying to also promote is to make sure that if you do have the capacity and capability is to include transcripts with your episodes because you know, being just an audio-only format really does, you know, exclude a lot of people, not just deaf people, but a lot of people where, you know, uh, for various reasons, uh, audio is not the best way to process information. So podcasts that really provide transcripts to really do show that they want to have a broader listenership slash readership. So if any of your podcasters out there, please consider that. Yes, and that is something that will be provided with this episode and hopefully with some backlogged episodes um, because that is not something that we have done in the past and that is really important. I'm really glad that you brought that up. Um, Thank you for providing me uh, uh, a contact for transcription. Um, and that's something that we will be working on. And like I said, this will be our very first episode that is transcribed. 
Yeah, see? Yeah. You just have a conversation and things are getting better. And this is what disability is, visibility is all about. <laughs> oh, thank you so much again, Alice. Well, thank you so much. I just really enjoyed talking with you today. Me too. Thanks again, friends, for listening. Barista is produced by me, Ashley Rodriguez. You can find a transcription of this episode on my newsletter, along with an accompanying article about this episode every Thursday at bossbarista.substack.com. To support the show, you can visit www.patreon.com bossbarista. We have over 80 patrons supporting the show right now, which is incredible. And that helps keep the show alive. We pay guests through this fund, we pay for website hosting, and we make donations. Half of our patron donations are currently pledged to five different nonprofits, each at $50 a month. Asada's Daughters, the Loveland Foundation, the Native American Rights Fund, the Grocery Run Club, and the Chicago Community Bond Fund. Again, if you want to support Boss Barista, consider making a monthly donation at www.patreon.com slash bossbarista. Another amazing way to support the show is to share this episode with just one person, a friend, someone who you think would learn something from this episode, anybody. Sharing on social media is also a huge help, along with giving us a five-star review on Apple iTunes. As a small production, these things matter a lot. So if you can take a little time, share out some of your favorite quotes from this episode and tag us, that would be amazing. We're at Boss Barista Podcast on Instagram and Boss underscore Barista on Twitter. You can also send me an email at bossbaristapodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week.